Chapter 16 Chapter 17 Chapter 18 Smith in the City This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.blogsome.com Today's reading by Luke Venediger Smith in the City by P.G. Woodhouse Chapter 16 Further Developments Bill, surname unknown, was not one of your ultra-scientific fighters. He did not favor the American crouch and the artistic feint. He had a style wholly his own. It seemed to have been modeled partly on tortoise and partly on a windmill. His head he appeared to be trying to conceal between his shoulders and he whirled his arms alternately in circular sweeps. Mark, on the other hand, stood upright and hit straight, with the result that he hurt his knuckles very much on his opponent's skull without seeming to disturb the latter to any great extent. In the process he received one of the windmill swings on the left ear. The crowd, strong pro-billites, raised a cheer. This maddened Mark, he assumed the offensive. Bill, satisfied for the moment with his success, had stepped back and was indulging in some fancy sparring when Mark sprang upon him like a panther. They clinched and Mark, who had got the undergrip, hurled Bill forcibly against a stout man who looked like a publican. The two fell in a heap, Bill underneath. At the same time, Bill's friends joined in. The first intimation Mark had of this was a violent blow across the shoulders with a walking stick. Even if he had been wearing his overcoat, the blow would have hurt. As he was in his jacket, it hurt more than anything he had ever experienced in his life. He leapt up with a yell, but Smith was there before him. Mark saw his assailant lift the stick again, and then collapsed as the old Etonian's right took him under the chin. He darted to Smith's side. This is no place for us, observed the latter sadly. Shift her, I think. Come on. They dashed simultaneously for the spot where the crowd was thinnest. The ring which had formed round Mark and Bill had broken up as the result of the intervention of Bill's allies, and at the spot for which they ran only two men were standing. And these had apparently made up their minds that neutrality was the best policy, for they made no movement to stop them. Smith and Mark charged through the gap and raced for the road. The suddenness of the move gave them just the start they needed. Mark looked over his shoulder. The crowd, to a man, seemed to be the following. Bull, excavated from beneath the publican, led the field. Lying a good second came a band of three, and after them the rest in a bunch. They reached the road in this order. Some fifty yards down the road was a stationary tram. In the ordinary course of things, it would probably have moved on long before Smith and Mark could have got to it. But the conductor, a man with sporting blood in him, seeing what appeared to be the finish of some marathon race, refrained from giving the signal and moved out into the road to observe the events more clearly, at the same time calling to the driver, who joined him. The passengers on the roof stood up to get a good view. There was some cheering. Smith and Mark reached the tram ten yards to the good and if it had been ready to start then all would have been well but bill and his friends had arrived while the driver and conductor were both out in the road the affair now began to resemble the doings of horatius on the bridge smith and mark turned to bay on the platform at the foot of the tram steps bill leading by three yards sprang onto it grabbed mark and fell with him on the road smith Descending with a dignity somewhat lessened by the fact that his hat was on the side of his head, was in time to engage the runners-up. Smith, as a pugilist, lacked something of the calm majesty which characterized him in the more peaceful moments of life, 
but he was undoubtedly effective. Nature had given him an enormous reach and a lightness on his feet remarkable in one of his size, and at some time in his career he appeared to have learnt how to use his hands. The first of the three runners, the walking stick manipulator, had the misfortune to charge straight into the old Etonian's left. It was a well-timed blow, and the force of it, added to the speed at which the victim was running, sent him onto the pavement, where he spun around and sat down. In the subsequent proceedings he took no part. The other two attacked Smith simultaneously, one on each side. In doing so, the one on the left tripped over Mike and Bill, who were still in the process of sorting themselves out, and fell, leaving Smith free to attend to the other. He was a tall, weedy youth. His conspicuous features were a long nose and a light yellow waistcoat. Smith hit him on the former with his left and on the latter with his right. The long youth emitted a gurgle and collided with Bill, who had wrenched himself free from Mike and staggered to his feet. Bill, having received a second blow in the eye during the course of his interview on the road with Mike, was not feeling himself. Mistaking the other for an enemy, he proceeded to smite him in the parts about the jaw. He had just upset him when a stern official voice observed, Here now, what's all this? There is no more unfailing corrective to a scene of strife than the what's all this of the London policeman. Bull abandoned his intention of stamping on the prostrate one, and the latter, sitting up, blinked and was silent. What's all this? asked the policeman again. Smith, adjusting his hat at the correct angle again, undertook the explanations. A distressing scene, officer, he said. A case of that unbridled brawling which is, alas, but too common in our London streets. These two, possibly still now the closest friends, fall out over some point, probably of the most trivial nature, and what happens? They brawl. They... He hit me, said the long youth, dabbing at his face with a handkerchief and pointing an accusing finger at Smith, who regarded him through his eyeglass with a look in which pity and censure were nicely blended. Bill, meanwhile, circling around restlessly, in the apparent hope of getting past the law and having another encounter with Mark, expressed himself in a stream of language which drew stern reproof from the shocked constable. You oppet, concluded the man in blue. That's what you do, you oppet. I should, said Smith kindly. The officer is speaking in your best interest. A man of taste and discernment, he knows what is best. His advice is good and should be followed. The constable seemed to notice Smith for the first time. He turned and stared at him. Smith's praise had not had the effect of softening him. His look was one of suspicion. And what might you have been up to, he inquired coldly. This man says you hit him. Smith waved the matter aside. Purely in self-defense, he said, purely in self-defense. What else could the man of spirit do? A mere tap to discourage an aggressive movement. The policeman stood silent, weighing matters in the balance. He produced a notebook and sucked his pencil. Then he called the conductor from the tram as a witness. A brainy and admirable step, said Smith approvingly. This rugged, honest man, all unused to verbal subtleties, shall give us his plain account of what happened. After which, as I presume this tram, little as I know of the habits of trams, has got to go somewhere today, I would suggest that we all separated and moved on. He took two half-crowns from his pocket and began to clink them meditatively together. The slight softening of the frigidity of the constable's manner became noticeable. There was a milder beam in the eyes which gazed into Smith's. Nor did the conductor seem altogether uninfluenced by the sight. The conductor deposed that he'd been on the point of pushing on, seen as how he'd hung about long enough when he'd seen them two gents. The long one with the eyeglass, Smith bowed, and the other one, a leg in it down the road towards him with the other blokes pelting after him. 
He added that, when they reached the tram, the two gents had got aboard, and was then set upon by the blokes. And after that he concluded, well, there was a bit of scrap, and that's how it was. Lucidly and excellently put, said Smith, that's just how it was. Comrade Jackson, I fancy we leave the court without a stain on our characters. We win through. Er, uh, Constable, we have given you a great deal of trouble. Possibly... Thank you, sir. There was a musical clinking. Now then, all of you, you up it. You've all been poking your noses in here long enough. Pop off. Get on with that tram, conductor. Smith and Mark settled themselves in a seat on the roof. When the conductor came along, Smith gave him a half-crown and asked after his wife and the little ones at home. The conductor thanked goodness that he was a bachelor, punched the tickets, and retired. Subject for a historical picture, said Smith. Wounded, leaving the field after the Battle of Clapham Common. How are your injuries, Comrade Jackson? My back's hurting like blazes, said Mark, and my ears all sore where that chap got me. Anything the matter with you? Physically, said Smith, no. Spiritually, much. Do you realize, Comrade Jackson, the thing that has happened? I am riding in a tram. I, Smith, have paid a penny for a ticket on the tram. If this should get about the clubs, I tell you, Comrade Jackson, no such crisis has ever occurred before in the course of my career. You can always get off, you know, said Mark. He thinks of everything, said Smith admiringly. You have touched the spot with an unerring finger. Let us descend. I observe in the distance a cab. That looks to me more the sort of thing we want. Let us go and parley with the driver. End of chapter 16 Chapter 17 Sunday Supper The cab took them back to the flat at considerable expense, and Smith requested Mark to make tea, a performance in which he himself was interested purely as a spectator. He had views on the subject of tea-making, which he liked to expound from an armchair or sofa, but he never got further than this. Mark, his back throbbing dully from the blow he had received, and feeling more than a little sore all over, prepared the Etna, fetched the milk, and finally produced the finished article. Smith sipped meditatively. How pleasant, he said, after the strafer's rest. We shouldn't have appreciated this simple cup of tea had our sensibilities remained unstirred this afternoon. We can now sit at our ease, like warriors after the fray, till the time comes for setting out to Comrade Waller's once more. Mark looked up. What? You don't mean to say you're going to sweat out to cap him again? Undoubtedly, Comrade Waller is expecting us to supper. What absolute rot! We can't fag back there. Noblesse oblige. The cry has gone round the Waller household. Jackson and Smith are coming to supper, and we cannot disappoint them now. Already the fatted blank manager has been killed, and the table creaks beneath what's left of the midday beef. We must be there. Besides, don't you want to see how the poor man is? Probably we shall find him in the act of omitting his last breath. I expect he was lynched by the enthusiastic mob. Not much, good Mark. They were too busy with us. All right, I'll come if you really want me to, but it's awful rot. One of the many things Mark could never understand in Smith was his fondness for getting into atmospheres that were not his own. He would go out of his way to do this. Mark, like most boys of his age, was never really happy and at his ease except in the presence of those of his own years and class. Smith, on the contrary, seemed to be bored by them, and infinitely preferred talking to somebody who lived in quite another world. Mark was not a snob. He simply had not the ability to be at his ease with people in another class from his own. He did not know what to talk to them about unless they were cricket professionals. 
With them, he was never at a loss. But Smith was different. He could get on with anyone. He seemed to have the gift of entering into their minds and seeing things from their point of view. As regarded Mr. Waller, Mike liked him personally and was prepared, as we have seen, to undertake considerable risks in his defence. But he loathed with all his heart and soul the idea of supper at his house. He knew that he would have nothing to say, whereas Smith gave him the impression of looking forward to the thing as a treat. The house where Mr. Waller lived was one of a row of semi-detached villas on the north side of the common. The door was opened to them by their host himself. So far from looking battered and emitting last breaths, he appeared particularly spruce. He had just returned from church and was still wearing his gloves and tall hat. He squeaked with surprise when he saw who were standing on the mat. Why, dear me, dear me, he said, here you are. I have been wondering what had happened to you. I was afraid that you might have been seriously hurt. I was afraid that those ruffians might have injured you. When I last saw you, you were being chivied, interposed Smith with dignified melancholy. Do not let us try to wrap up the facts in pleasant words. We were being chivied. We were legging it with the infuriated mob at our heels. An ignominious position for a Shropshire Smith. But, after all, Napoleon did the same. But what happened? I could not see. I only know that quite suddenly the people seemed to stop listening to me and all gathered round you and Jackson. And then I saw that Jackson was engaged in a fight with a young man. Comrade Jackson, I imagine, having heard a great deal about all men being equal, was anxious to test the theory and see whether Comrade Bill was as good a man as he was. The experiment was broken off prematurely, but I personally should be inclined to say that Comrade Jackson had a shade the better of the exchanges. Mr. Waller looked with interest at Mark, who shuffled and felt awkward. He was hoping that Smith would say nothing about the reason of his engaging Bill in combat. He had an uneasy feeling that Mr. Waller's gratitude would be effusive and overpowering, and he did not wish to pose as the brave young hero. There are moments when one does not feel equal to the role. Fortunately, before Mr. Waller had time to ask any further questions, the supper bell sounded, and they went into the dining room. Sunday supper, unless done on a large and informal scale, is probably the most depressing meal in existence. There is a chill discomfort in the round of beef, an icy severity about the open jam tart. The blank marge shivers miserably. Spiritous liquor helps to counteract the influence of these things, and so does exhilarating conversation. Unfortunately, at Mr. Waller's table there was neither. The cashier's views on temperance were not merely for the platform, they extended to the home. And the company was not of the exhilarating sort. Besides Smith, Mark and their host, there were four people present. Comrade Preble, the orator, a young man of the name of Richards, Mr. Waller's niece, answering to the name of Ada, who was engaged to Mr. Richards, and Edward. Edward was Mr. Waller's son. He was ten years old, wore a very tight Eton suit, and had the peculiarly loathsome expression which a snub nose sometimes gives to the young. It would have been plain to the most casual observer that Mr. Waller was fond and proud of his son. The cashier was a widower, and after five minutes' acquaintance with Edward, Mark felt strongly that Mrs. Waller was the lucky one. Edward sat next to Mark and showed a tendency to concentrate his conversation on him. Smith, at the opposite end of the table, beamed in a fatherly manner upon the pair through his eyeglass. Mark got on with small girls reasonably well. He preferred them at a distance, but, if cornered by them, could put up a fairly good show. Small boys, however, filled him with a sort of frozen horror, 
It was his view that a boy should not be exhibited publicly until he reached an age where he might be in the running for some sort of colours at a public school. Edward was one of those well-informed small boys. He opened on Mark with the first mouthful. Do you know the principal exports of Marseilles? he inquired. What? said Mark coldly. Do you know the principal exports of Marseilles? I do. Oh? said Mark. Yes. Do you know the capital of Madagascar? Mark as crimson as the beef he was attacking, said he did not. I do. Oh, said Mark. Who was the first king? You mustn't worry, Mr. Jackson, Teddy, said Mr. Waller, with a touch of pride in his voice, as who should say, there are not many boys of his age, I can tell you, who could worry you with questions like that. No, no, he likes it, said Smith unnecessarily. He likes it. I always hold that much may be learned by a casual chit-chat across the dinner table. I owe much of my own grasp of... I bet you don't know what's the capital of Madagascar, interrupted Mark rudely. I do, said Edward. I can tell you the kings of Israel, he added, turning to Mark. He seemed to have no curiosity as to the extent of Smith's knowledge. Mark's appeared to fascinate him. Mark helped himself to beetroot in moody silence. His mouth was full when Comrade Preble asked him a question. Comrade Preble, as it had been pointed out in an earlier part of the narrative, was a good chap, but had no roof to his mouth. I beg your pardon, said Mark. Comrade Preble repeated his observation. Mark looked helplessly at Smith, but Smith's eyes were on his plate. Mark felt he must venture on some answer. No, he said decidedly. Comrade Preble seemed slightly taken aback. There was an awkward pause. Then Mr. Waller, for whom his fellow socialists' methods of conversation held no mysteries, interpreted. The mustard, Preble? Yes, yes. Wouldn't you mind passing Preble the mustard, Mr. Jackson? Oh, sorry, gasped Mark and reached out, upset the water jug into the open jam tart. Through the black mist which rose before his eyes as he leapt to his feet and stammered apologies, came the dispassionate voice of Master Edward Waller, reminding him that mustard was first introduced into Peru by Cortez. His host was all courtesy and consideration. He passed the matter off genially. But life can never be quite the same after you have upset a water jug into an open jam tart at the table of a comparative stranger. Mark's nerve had gone. He ate on, but he was a broken man. At the other end of the table, it became gradually apparent that things were not going on altogether as they should have done. There was a sort of bleakness in the atmosphere. Young Mr. Richards was looking like a stuffed fish, and the face of Mr. Waller's niece was cold and set. "'Why, come, come, Ada,' said Mr. Waller breezily. "'What's the matter? You're eating nothing. What's George been saying to you?' he added jocularly. "'Thank you, Uncle Robert,' replied Ada precisely. There's nothing the matter. Nothing that Mr. Richards can say to me can upset me. Mr. Richards, echoed Mr. Waller in astonishment. How was he to know that, during the walk back from the church, the world had been transformed, George had become Mr. Richards, and all was over? I assure you, Ada, began that unfortunate young man. Ada turned a frigid shoulder towards him. Come, come, said Mr. Waller, disturbed. What's all this? What's all this? His niece burst into tears and left the room. If there is anything more embarrassing to a guest than a family row, we have yet to hear of it. Mark, scarlet to the extreme edges of his ears, concentrated himself on his plate. Comrade Preble made a great many remarks, which were probably illuminating if they could have been understood. Mr. Waller looked astonished at Mr. Richards. Mr. Richards, pink but dogged, loosened his collar, but said nothing. Smith, leaning forward, asked Master Edward Waller his opinion on the licensing bill. We happen to have a word or two, said Mr. Richards at length, on the way home from church on the subject of woman's suffrage. That fatal topic, murmured Smith, 
in Australia, began Master Edward Waller, I was rather, well, rather facetious about it, continued Mr. Richards. Smith clicked his tongue sympathetically. In Australia, said Mr. Edwards, I went talking on, laughing and joking, when all of a sudden she flew out at me. How was I to know that she was out and soul in the movement? You never told me, he added accusingly to his host. In Australia, said Edward, I'll go and try and get her round. How was I to know? Mr. Richards thrust back his chair and bound from the room. Now, Ina Yao, Ayu Ula, said Comrade Preble judicially, but was interrupted. How very disturbing, said Mr. Waller. I am so sorry that this should have happened. Ada is such a touchy, sensitive girl. She, in Australia, said Edward in even tones, they've got woman suffrage already. Did you know that, he said to Mark. Mark made no answer. His eyes were fixed on his plate. A bead of perspiration began to roll down his forehead. If his feelings could have been ascertained at that moment, they would have been summed up in the words, Death, where is thy sting? End of chapter 17 Chapter 18 Smith Makes a Discovery Woman, said Smith, helping himself to trifle, and speaking with the air of one launched upon his special subject, are, one must recollect, like... Like, uh, well, in fact, just so. Passing on lightly from that conclusion, let us turn for a moment to the rights of property, in connection with which Comrade Preble and yourself had so much that was interesting to say this afternoon. Perhaps you, he bowed in Comrade Preble's direction, would resume, for the benefit of Comrade Jackson, a novice in this cause, but earnest, your very lucid Comrade Preble beamed and took the floor. Mark began to realize that, till now, he had never known what boredom meant. There had been moments in his life which had been less interesting than other moments, but nothing to touch this for agony. Comrade Preble's address steamed on like water rushing over a weir. Every now and then there was a word or two which was recognizable, but this happened so rarely that it amounted to little. Sometimes Mr. Waller would interject a remark, but not often. He seemed to be of the opinion that Comrade Prebbles was the mastermind, and that to add anything to his views would be in the nature of painting the lily and gilding the refined gold. Mark himself said nothing. Smith and Edward were equally silent. The former sat like one in a trance, thinking his own thoughts, while Edward, who, prospecting on the sideboard, had located a rich biscuit mine and was too occupied for speech. After about twenty minutes during which Mark's discomfort changed to a dull resignation, Mr. Waller suggested a move to the drawing-room, where Ada, he said, would play some hymns. The prospect did not dazzle Mark, but any change, he thought, must be for the better. He had sat staring at the ruin of blank mange so long that it had begun to hypnotize him. Also, the move had the excellent result of eliminating the snub-nosed Edward, who was sent to bed. His last words were in the form of a question, addressed to Mark, on the subject of the hypotenuse and the square upon the same. A remarkably intelligent boy, said Smith. You must let him come to tea at our flat one day. I may not be in myself, I have many duties which keep me away, but Comrade Jackson is sure to be there and will be delighted to chat with him. On the way upstairs, Mark tried to get Smith to himself for a moment to suggest the advisability of an early departure, but Smith was in close conversation with his host. Mark was left to Comrade Preble, who, apparently, had only touched the fringe of his subject in his lecture in the dining-room. When Mr. Waller had predicted hymns in the drawing-room, he had been too sanguine, or too pessimistic. Of Ada, when they arrived, there were no signs. It seemed that she had gone straight to bed. 
Young Mr. Richards was sitting on the sofa, moodily turning the leaves of a photograph album which contained portraits of Master Edward Waller in geometrically progressing degrees of repulsiveness. Here, in frocks, looking like a gargoyle. There, in a sailor suit, looking like nothing on earth. The inspection of these was obviously deepening Mr. Richards' gloom, but he proceeded doggedly with it. Comrade Preble backed the reluctant Mark into a corner, and, like the ancient mariner, held him with a glittering eye. Smith and Mr. Waller, in the opposite corner, were looking at something with their heads close together. Mike definitely abandoned all hope of a rescue from Smith, and tried to buoy himself up with the reflection that this could not last forever. Hours seemed to pass, and then at last he heard Smith's voice saying goodbye to his host. He sprang to his feet. Comrade Pribble was in the middle of a sentence, but this was no time for polished courtesy. He felt that he must get away, and at once. I fear, Smith was saying, that we must tear ourselves away. We have greatly enjoyed our evening. You must look us up at our flat one day and bring Comrade Preble. If I am not in, Comrade Jackson is certain to be, and he will be more than delighted to hear Comrade Preble speak further on the subject of which he is such a master. Comrade Preble was understood to say that he would certainly come. Mr. Waller beamed. Mr. Richards, still steeped in gloom, shook hands in silence. Out in the road, with the front door shut behind them, Mark spoke his mind. Look here, Smith, he said definitely. If being your confidential secretary and adviser is going to get me in for any more of that sort of thing, you can jolly well accept my resignation. The orgy was not to your taste, said Smith sympathetically. Mark laughed, one of those short, hollow, bitter laughs. I am at a loss, Comrade Jackson, said Smith, to understand your attitude. You fed sumptuously. You had fun with the crockery. That knockabout act of yours with the water jug was alone worth the money. And you had the advantage of listening to the views of a master of his subject. What more do you want? What on earth did you land me with that man Preble for? Land you? Why, you courted a society. I had practically to drag you away from him. When I got up to say goodbye, you were listening to him with bulging eyes. I never saw such a picture of rapt attention. Do you mean to tell me, Comrade Jackson, that your appearance belied you, that you were not interested? Well, well, how we misread our fellow creatures. I think you might have come and lent a hand with Preble. It was a bit thick. I was too absorbed with Comrade Weller. We were talking of things of vital moment. However, the night is yet young. We will take this cab, wend our way to the west, seek a cafe, and cheer ourselves with light refreshments. Arrived at a cafe whose window appeared to be a sort of museum of every kind of German sausage, they took possession of a vacant table and ordered coffee. Mark soon found himself soothed by his bright surroundings, and gradually his impressions of blank mange Edward and Comrade Preble faded from his mind. Smith, meanwhile, was preserving an unusual silence, being deep in a large square book of the sort in which press cuttings were pasted. As Smith scanned its contents, a curious smile lit up his face. His reflections seemed to be of an agreeable nature. Hello, said Mark. What have you got hold of there? Where did you get that? Comrade Waller very kindly lent it to me. He showed it to me after supper, knowing how enthusiastically I was attached to the cause. Had you been less tensely wrapped up in Comrade Preble's conversation, I would have desired you to step across and join us. However, you now have your opportunity. But what is it? said Mark. It is the record of the meetings of the Tulse Hill Parliament, said Smith impressively, a faithful record of all they said, all the votes of confidence they passed in the government, and also all the nasty knocks they gave it from time to time. What on earth's the Tulse Hill Parliament? It is, alas, said Smith in a grave, sad voice, no more. In life it was beautiful,
but now it has done the Tom Bowling act. It has gone aloft. We are dealing, Comrade Jackson, not with the live, vivid present, but with the far-off, rusty past. And yet, in a way, there is a touch of the live, vivid present mixed up in it. I don't know what the dickens you're talking about, said Mark. Let's have a look anyway. Smith handed him the volume and, leaning back, sipped his coffee and watched him. At first, Mark's face was bored and blank, but suddenly an interested look came into it. Aha, said Smith. Who's Bickersdark? Anything to do with our Bickersdark? No other than our genial friend himself. Mark turned the pages, reading a line or two on each. Hello, he said, chuckling. He lets himself go a bit, doesn't he? He does, acknowledged Smith, a fiery, passionate nature, that of Comrade Bickersdark. He's simply cursing the government here, giving them frightful beans. Smith nodded. I noticed the fact myself. But what's it all about? As far as I can glean from Comrade Waller, said Smith, about twenty years ago, when he and Comrade Bickersdark worked hand in hand as fellow clerks at the New Asiatic, they were both members of the Tulse Hill Parliament, that powerful institution. At the time, Comrade Bickersdark was as fruity a socialist as Comrade Waller is now. Only, apparently, as he began to get on a bit in the world, he altered his views to some extent as regards the iniquity of freezing on to a decent share of the doubloons. And that, you see, is where the dim and rusty past begins to get mixed up with the live, vivid present. If any tactless person were to publish those very able speeches made by Comrade Bickersdark when a bulwark of the Tulsehill Parliament, our revered chief would be more or less caught bending, if I may employ the expression, as regards his chances of getting in as a unionist candidate at Kenningford. You follow me, Watson? I rather fancy the light-hearted electors of Kenningford. From what I have seen of their rather acute sense of humour, would be, as it were, all over. It would be very, very trying for Comrade Bickersdark if these speeches were to get about. You aren't going to. I shall do nothing rashly. I shall merely place this handsome volume among my treasured books. I shall add it to my Books That Have Helped Me series, because I fancy that, in an emergency, it may not be at all a bad thing to have about me. And now, he concluded, as the hour is getting late, perhaps we had better be shoving off for home. End of chapter 18